and we do want to have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing, and then we'll look into God's word and uh, see what God has in store for us from the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for the glories of this day. And Lord, while we anticipate much to follow in the morning worship service, we want to consider now, because now is when we have come for this particular hour to place ourselves under the ministry of your word by the Holy Spirit, and trust, Lord, that that's exactly what it would be, that you would just put the speaker, the teacher in the background, and allow your word to have preeminence in this class today. Also, we pray for each listener, whether in our class or the ones uh, elsewhere here in the building, that you would just give us the ability to put aside anything, Lord, that would distract us, because we often come with so many things that have uh, occurred that are a part of our lives, even sometimes harmless things, things that we are looking to do later in the day, but that doesn't help us to focus now on your word, and that's what we want to do. I pray, Lord, that you would bless me, help me to be warm, practical, fervent, and helpful to people today. Would you just give me uh, insight and liberty and freedom in the presentation of today's lesson, and I'll give you thanks and praise now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. All right, let's look at the book of Second Peter chapter 1. We want to read um, from the chapter beginning at verse number 12, and, and one of the things I want to say to you here at the outset before we really get into this is just that we have a longer section to do because we're going to be completing the chapter today. And uh, I always feel like I have to apologize when we have a lot to do because we sort of have to keep things moving and, and I don't always get to say everything I would like to say. But when we come to this particular section, you have here, I think, what's, what is the capstone of the chapter. You have the crowning argument in the development of what Peter has been doing so far with reference to faith. And um, so more on that in a minute. Let's read the text. Therefore, verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the present truth that you, or in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cunningly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, just let me check real quick. You have a handout if you want it. The lectern is there just inside the door with them. <clears throat> I didn't check them, but if you, you want one that says Lesson 3 at the top, okay? Usually I go out there and check that. All right, so Lesson 3 today, Grounding Your Faith. 
Let's just try to, if you're in the class today for the very first time, let's just go back for a quick moment and kind of recapitulate what we've been talking about. Talking about the fact that what is going on in 2 Peter is a little different than what's going on in 1 Peter. Even though the audiences, as we understand things, are the same, a few years have passed now, probably somewhere around three. So circumstances are different, even though he's writing to the same groups of churches. And in 1 Peter, he's dealing with the subject of suffering. We, we saw that. We looked at the theme of Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. And, uh, you know, I pointed out to you at the time, it's one thing to say 1 Peter is about suffering. And that helps you because you know something about what the topic is when you look at the book. But it doesn't really tell us too much that's helpful to us personally in our Christian walk. When you start saying Christ is our sufficiency in suffering, now you've put it into the form of a message that you're suggesting Peter is conveying. And as that's developed in the book, that becomes helpful to us. Well, when we look at 2 Peter, so we're talking about sufficiency in faith. And we can talk about faith in the subjective sense, that is, what you and I believe. Or we can talk about it in the objective sense, the revealed body of Christian truth. Both senses are found in the book of 2 Peter, but the backdrop of this is false teachers. So takes Peter the whole chapter because he's got something really important to do in talking about faith in chapter number one. Once that's over with, and God willing we'll complete that today, you get to the frontal assault, so to speak, an expose of these false teachers. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, but false teachers also arose among the people. So think about this in what I've said so far. If we have this kind of a problem today, because it wasn't just in the first century, we still have a lot of false teaching and religious confusion. And it's one thing to talk about and say, well, 2 Peter talks about sufficiency for faith. It's another thing to say, the Bible is our sufficiency in faith, which that's where I'm headed with this. That's the thesis statement, so to speak, that I'm, I'm making from the book. That, be the, that being the case, so think about what's going on so far. The argument opens, or the presentation opens, in a discussion of faith. Peter talks about having like precious faith, as the King James translates it, or in verse 1, faith equal in standing with ours. And we talked about the subject of well, if you put it as a question, so how do we get faith? I mean, how does that come about? And I won't go back over that ground that we looked at in those opening four verses. But then we progress to find something that's dear and true to the heart of, I think, every preacher and every student of the scriptures, and that is that while there's nothing we can add to the faith that God gives us, in other words, this is, a, this is an experience that we have because of a work God has done in our hearts. We come to faith in Christ, but it's not of our own doing. Peter makes that clear. But once we have that, faith is not a static experience. God doesn't just expect us to take our Christianity, as it were, and sit on it. But he talks about growing. So we go from getting your faith to growing your faith. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. As I pointed out last week, make sure that your faith is fully outfitted. And then you get to the... Um, Verse up beyond this, verse number 8, for if you have these qualities, or if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So the moment you talk about providing or supplying in your faith something, and then you talk about 
what he has here uh, increasing, you're talking about the subject of growth. And I mentioned to you before, it's, it's easy for me to remember because um, if you talk about if these things be in you and abound, so the King James uses the word abounding, and it uses the word add, so add and abound. Any of those concepts point to the subject of growth. Okay, that was already more an introduction than I intended to do. But why I really think that this is the capstone now of the whole thing is because you have this picture presented of faith, and he talks about how we get our faith. He talks about what you do with faith once you have it, the part that the believer plays along with the working of God and seeing faith grown and developed in his life. But then you get to this section, and he talks about grounding your faith. One of the things I point out here by way of introduction is I think that that is probably one of the dearest subjects on the heart of preachers, certainly the apostles. Look at that statement number two. Grounding was always the goal of the apostles. Take a look at this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This, the context of this is Paul, you remember, when he was at Thessalonica, he had to leave prematurely because of persecution. You remember that when we went through Acts? So he's there for roughly three weeks and he has to be gone. When he gets to Athens, this is what he says. This is a short while later. He's very burdened about these people. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left alone at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Here's this word to establish and exhort you in your faith. Where do we see that in our text? Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established. There's our word, grounding or being established. This is what he's going to be talking about here. And um, it's already been something. So you can see from that verse right there, that was something that was the goal of Paul in respect to his ministry. That, that right away he was concerned for believers. They had gotten their faith, to use the language that we used from our outline. They had become Christians. But now he wanted to see these people not only growing, but fully grounded, fully grounded in their faith. That's what makes for mature, um, productive believers. All right, this is a subject very dear to Peter's heart. Peter's already talked about this over in chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a while, this is 1 Peter, so he's, he's already introduced this concept in his prayer for the believers. After you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and there's our word, establish you. Now, I think, again, you've got Peter reflecting on personal language and personal experience. Remember how when we looked at that section in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, those of you who were in the class, we talked about how deeply personal that had to be with Peter when he was telling the believers, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he's thinking about this experience that he had in which Jesus tried to plead with him, James and John, and say, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. But it got even more pointed with Peter because what happened he said to him here, Simon, Simon, this is Luke's account, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, and there's the word. Same word. Now I point out to you in uh, 
this third point here, this, this, this word has kind of an interesting background to it. Sterizo in Greek is a, is a word that sterix is a prop. And so those of you who have been to, um, just recently they concluded last evening, the uh, Living Gallery over at, at the university. But any production like that you go to, there are various props that are used. And those things help support the conveyance of the message, right? Those are important because they help support the conveyance of the message. But I want to give you another image. You remember that story in the Bible where the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. In the wilderness, they encounter the Amalekites. I believe it was the Amalekites. And they have to do battle with them. <clears throat> Moses goes up on the hill and he holds his arms up. Remember this? And it, the Bible tells us as long as he holds his arms up, the children of Israel prevail, and Joshua is their, their military commander, and he, they're, they're victorious. And his, but what does the Bible say? His arms got heavy. Now I want to ask you, anybody in, ever, in ministry ever had that experience? Your arms get heavy. Or just in the Christian experience, you, your arms get heavy. And so what happened? They went and he, I believe they sat him there on a rock, and he had Aaron and her, one on one side, one on the other to help, and as long as those arms were up like that, they were props. Well, if you think about the Bible as the ultimate prop for faith, the ministry of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, that's the ultimate source of being successfully grounded in your faith. All right, think about where we are so far. This is going to develop a little bit more as we get into the passage. We live in a world in which we are surrounded by confusion, darkness, and false teaching. That's going to be front and center next time, chapter 2. Peter has this burden, as did all the apostles, and thought it, about it from his own life, how he was warned. And he's concerned about the believers here. In verse 11, he says, for in this way there will be, uh, sorry, verse, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, uh, uh, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, you will never fall. This is why I worded this. Such grounding all, was always the goal of the apostles. And because in this first statement, it's the surest way to prevent having an experience like Peter did. Slippage getting tripped up in your Christian walk. If we're constantly pursuing the Word of God, the Word of God is constantly enriching our lives. If we're not just sitting on our laurels thinking, okay, I'm saved, not, I've got it, everything's good. If we don't have that concept of Christianity, but instead have the concept that, no, there's these things I need to fully outfit my faith with, those seven ingredients that he talks about, and we give all diligence to do that, let me illustrate this way, and then we're going to leave this. So we live in the foothills, right? So that means we're accustomed to hills around here. Some guy, I think, where my wife worked just before we were getting ready to move down here, so South Carolina, so he said, uh, oh, good, well, at least it'll be flat. And we both kind of smiled, you know, because now, see, I grew up along the coast, so you know, if you're a sand lapper like I was, uh, yeah, maybe. But not around here. It's not really flat. So you're driving your car along, and you have a little bit of a grade. You can encounter this even on Wade Hampton Boulevard. 
and everything's okay with your car, right? So you make it up that grade, no problem at all, but you won't make it up that grade unless you do what? You have to keep your foot on the gas. If you take your foot off the gas, what's going to happen? You're going to slow down and slow down and slow down until some guy behind you blares this horn. But you'll slow down and slow down and you'll eventually stop. And then everything will be fine, right? You'll just stop and, and everything will be good until you decide you're ready to go forward again. Uh-uh. You'll roll backwards. Do you understand my point? If we're, if we're not keeping our foot on the gas in our Christian experience, it doesn't become static for long. You might stop for a few moments, but eventually you'll begin to kind of slip back. So this is what Peter is saying. The surest way to keep from having that kind of a regression, backsliding, whatever you want to call it, uh, in, in our Christian lives is to be fully grounded. All right, let's get into this because there are three thoughts that I want to present to you today. Peter's going to give us three reasons why it's so important to be fully grounded. First of all, leaders pass. Who is the leader insofar as what we're looking at here? Well, of course, it's Peter. I mean, I don't mean Peter was the pastor of all these churches, but I just mean in the presentation of the book, it's obvious that Peter had some degree of spiritual oversight and care for these people to whom he was writing. And if you have to think about having a spiritual leader, Peter would make a fine one, would he not? And if you think back through your Christian experience, I just want to challenge you. If I, if I challenge you with this thought right away, you'll think of somebody. And you don't have to put your hand up and you don't have to say who that is. But what Christian leader has made a huge difference in your life? And everybody's got one, two, three, maybe more people that just immediately come to mind. It might be the person who pointed you to Christ. It might be the person whose ministry clarified God's direction for you in life and what God would have you to do. It might have been a pastor who, in whose church you were for years and years and years, and, and you, just, you just grew as a Christian under that ministry. We all have spiritual leaders, but Peter's point is, however good that experience is, however much God ordains and uses spiritual leaders, they pass. Let's see how he develops this. So this is the very same kind of thing as it was with... Um, 2 Timothy, and I've mentioned to you, just Peter senses that the time is short, just as Paul did when he wrote 2 Timothy. For I am now ready to be offered, he said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, this is really interesting because in that verse, 4, 6 of 2 Timothy, when he's talking about his, he's, he's, he's talking euphemistically in a way, but I want to make a point from this. When he starts talking about his departure, he doesn't just mean he's going to be let out of jail. He's talking about his departure from this life. But he uses a different word than what Peter does. And in verse 4, 15, Peter also uses this word, departure. It's rendered the same way in English, but it's a different word. And I want to get to that in just a moment. He says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure. How did he know about this? Well, he's getting older now, so he he has every sense, and, and we can't discount how the Holy Spirit may have been working in his heart, too, to sort of confirm, okay, it's getting very close, Peter. That's what he says. And how did he know about this? Well, he says Jesus made this known to him. So, really, do we have that in the Bible? Yeah, we do, and I thought I had it. Um, did I get past that? Eh. 
John 21. Yeah, there it is right there. Truly, truly, this is Jesus in John 21, 18. I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, and Peter is that now, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. I think Peter correctly understood this of crucifixion. So, think about something for a moment. Let, let's say you're 35. And prophecy is, is, is still something that someone's able to make known to you, just as Jesus did. It's authoritative. That eventually, this is what's, when you're old, this is, this is where it's headed. Would you dread that? Would you have been someone to look at the cross of Christ and think about crucifixion and the agonies that are involved in that form of leaving this world and dreaded that? Well, maybe in the sense of physical suffering, but I'll tell you something. When you look at how Peter responds to this, and how is it that he's able to do this? Here's how I phrase it. Yet his faith, his faith is what caused him to be able to look at death in a way that people who don't have faith can't do. And I, when I say faith, of course, you know I mean Christian faith. And he gives us two little insights into, it's almost like a mini-theology of death to the believer. It's not everything, but it's, it's Peter's thoughts on this. First of all, he says this. When he uses this word for departure, I told you it's a different word than the one that Paul used. He uses the word that's actually in the original, it's exodus. Well, that's a really interesting thought. Literally, it, it's a compound of a preposition and a noun. And the noun is a word that means road or way, and the preposition means out or out of. So it's the way out. He's thinking of death as the way out of this world. The children of Israel left Egypt and we call it the exodus. It was the way out. And Peter is talking about this departure and he calls it an exodus. He doesn't reflect on anything about the agonies of the crucifixion or anything on that because, and there's, a, there's an incredible turn of thought in this passage, he's already used the word that in the original is the opposite of this word. You can have an exodus, which is a way out, or you can have an entrance, which is a way in. Entrance is isodos, same word, but with a different preposition on the front, the way in. So when Peter talks about death, leaving this world as a departure, as an exodus, the way he looks at it is exactly in the terms of what you have in the verse before. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying, well, when I leave this world, it's just... The way out here is the way in there. And then he adds something else. Because he talks about the image of a tent. Since verse 14, he says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And the ESV translates body, which is understandable, but the word in the original is simply a tent. He, he refers to his body as a tent. And he says, I'm going to have to put my tent off. And if you think about it, if, you, if anybody here does camping or you've been much 
around that, or you've read much about like when armies and in the days when they used tents like this, the expression that we would use for something like this is when you get ready to break camp and leave to go somewhere else, it's called the striking the tent. You strike the tents. You take the tents down because you're going to the next place. And Paul uses this too. I mean, this is all through scripture. Jesus used this uh, when uh, he used that word exodus of his own, but we're talking about the other one now, but Jesus used that word exodus when, when in the Mount of Transfiguration. But Paul, look at what Paul does with this. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4 says, For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Anybody here identify with that? Got a few groans? Wake up in the morning with a few aches? Spend a day doing yard work or something like that, and the next morning get up and say, I regret that? It's temporary. Paul, Paul says, not that we would be unclothed, in other words, not looking to be a disembodied spirit, but that we would be further clothed said, so that this mortal may be swallowed up of life. And you know something, this fits so well with this imagery that Peter's already used in 1 Peter 2.11 when he talks about our earthly life here being a pilgrimage. He says, I urge you, in verse 11 of chapter 2, 1 Peter, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And if you look at that verse in Hebrews, this is exactly the way the patriarchs lived life. By faith he went into the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. This is Abraham. Why was he content to live in a tent? Of course, they, they did that in those days, but the author of the Hebrews goes on and tells us something else. Because he was looking for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So put all this together and think about it. I mean, there's nobody, there's nobody that's really looking forward to the experience of death. But a believer can certainly look on death in a completely different way than a person who doesn't faith because it's the way out of this world. The worst it can do to me is put me right at the gate of heaven to enter in. And I don't want, know about you, I realize it sort of deepens and changes as the years roll on and as we get older, but I'm really glad not to be living here forever. I'm not telling you that I'm just looking to strike my tent tomorrow or this afternoon. There's a few things I think, you know, that if God would be pleased, I'd still like to be around for and see. But to be here in perpetuity, no, I, we weren't made for that, and I'm not looking forward to that. So Peter says, I've got to remind you about this. You, if you re read these verses 12 to 15, you'll notice this three times over, he finds some expression to tell them he's going to remind them. I'm going to give all diligence to be sure you don't forget this. Somebody told me a long time ago, you know what the first law of good teaching is? Repetition. You know what the second law of good teaching is? Repetition. You know what the third law of good teaching is? Repetition. So this is what Peter is doing. He keeps on reinforcing these truths uh, in the lives of the people that he's writing to. But here's the point. No matter how, to, how great a leader you have, I mean, even if you had Peter as your spiritual leader, they all pass. So years ago I heard someone say this, and I can't remember from whom the quotation comes, but 
it's a profound statement. It, it stuck with me, and I used it many times over the years in, in discussing this with people, but you know, God buries his workmen, but he continues his work. And we're just here for a time, and we're here at his pleasure, and we serve at his pleasure. But as leaders come and leaders go, our faith doesn't have to be shaken because God is the one who is in control of the entire situation, who raises up these people and uses them for our good and for his glory. But there's nothing permanent about that. Second thing we got to look at is experiences fade. Did you notice how much of a, an emphasis there is on experience today? And I have to talk about this carefully because there's balance in, in this. We aren't discounting the value of the certain value. That is that there is a certain value to experience. In fact, if you want to reflect on experience, you can go back to what we talked about in the beginning when he talks about how these people got their faith, how they experienced saving faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm not, I'm not saying that all experience is bad. But I am saying that when we get this thing out of balance, and experience is what we major on. And I think we have a problem with that, actually, in, in the contemporary Christian scene. I, I'm not using that word as a genre so much as I am just in what's current. Because have you ever kind of noticed, now see, we lived in a part of Pennsylvania where ha half an hour away was the creation festival every year. Have any, any of you heard of this? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Beat Pennsylvania people. I mean, this is, I think, the largest supposedly Christian gathering in the year. And they bring in all these bands, all these musicians. You have people coming from everywhere to the Podunksville, Pennsylvania. I mean, and it, it clogs the roads and everything else. And here's, here's kind of the point. I'm not saying that in of itself is bad. What I'm saying is, then we kind of try to replicate sometimes in, in the church scene, the way we, I don't like the expression, but you get what I'm saying, do church. And we try to produce experience, an experience for people on Sunday morning. And so we come in with powerful, beat-driven music. In some places, they even have lights and all these things. And, and I, here's what I'm saying, folks. Please don't get me wrong. I'm just saying... You go to church on Sunday hoping for this euphoric experience. And that's got to tide you over until next Sunday. Well, what are you going to do for seven days during the week? I mean, can you go home today to an Easter Sunday meal and eat enough for the week? I mean, you might try. You might feel like you did when it's over with. But can you really do that? No. And experiences are not enough. This is where being grounded in the faith and continually working on this in our lives, this is where this really, really comes to bear. But if you want to talk about experiences, Peter, Peter's wasn't too shabby. I mean, only three people went up on the Mount of Trans Transfiguration, right? And some of the things he uses to describe this, he says in verse 16, we, we were, not verse, yeah, verse 16, when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That word majesty is really interesting. That, that, that verse in Luke 9.43, 
This is when Jesus had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and that man with the epileptic son who was demon-possessed was below and the disciples could not cast this demon out. Jesus did. And then it says they were all astonished at the majesty of God. So this is a quality of God that's being applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just kind of another indirect way of, of pointing to, the, to the, the deity of the Lord Jesus because God possesses majesty in a way that no human being does. And secondly, in verse 17, he talks about being a, a wit, an eyewitness of the majestic glory of the Father. What's that all about? Well, I really think when you study this out, you very well, come, very well may come to the conclusion that it's likely a reference to the cloud. Do we, do we have anything like that in the descriptions in the Bible? Yes. Look at Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's a, a really important message for us, because you remember part of this was they also saw Moses and Elijah. And Peter was this, kind of the one, you know, Peter, <laughs> bless his heart, I mean... Yeah, I, I made up my mind a long time ago when I heard so many preachers castigate Peter that I would never preach sermons that way. Because I, I can't measure up to Peter. And I don't know if any of you think you can in here. So if the day I figure I can start measuring up to Peter, maybe I'll talk about that. But you, you do have to identify with him at times how he sort of got going talking before his thinking caught up with what he was saying. And you remember what he said, hey, this is great. It's good for us to be here. Should we make three tents? Remember? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And God said, that'll be the end of that. And a bright cloud overshadowed them, and he said, listen to him. Uh, you know, as wonderful as it is to see Moses and Elijah, it's nothing on a plane with Jesus Christ. And his garments became white, and they glistened. glistened. I think Mark is the one who tells us brighter than any fuller on earth can wash them. And they saw this ex experience, but this cloud. Now, what about this cloud? Well, you know, I mean, the Old Testament keeps talking about this cloud. Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked in, in toward the wilderness. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. He says majestic glory. A little later on in the worship service. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1, and it says, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the concept, this glory of the Lord that appeared in this cloud. Uh, another verse from Ezekiel, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, the fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. This vision he has of God, this vision of God's glory. So he is saying, look, I, I testify to you about Jesus. When I, when, I, when I testify to you about these things, this is no cunningly devised fable. This is no cunningly devised myth. We were eyewitnesses of this. We're talking about an experience. They had an experience that... Only three people ever had. 
So if you want to talk about experiences, that's about the height right there of any experience that you could talk about. But Peter's not here today. I mean, what he wrote about it is, what we have in the Bible is, which is kind of back to the point, experiences fade. You can't live off of experiences anymore. You can live off baby Ruth's. Snickers, what's your favorite candy bar? I mean, these are great. But if you try to live off that, you're, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble before too much longer. You can't live off those things. You have to have solid food every day. And this is what Peter is driving at. So let's get to the last because, as always, the clock is our enemy. We have these three reasons why the Bible is the ultimate tool that God uses in the grounding of his children in the faith. Leaders pass. We have to have the Bible. That remains. That's what those good leaders, if they were good leaders anyway, used in their ministries. Experiences, as, as good as they can be, they fade. And if you're not careful, then you're just hungering for the next one, hungering for the next one. But you know what? You have your Bible every day. But the world darkens too. And where do we see this? Well, let's look down at verse number 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A dark place. That's where you and I are today. I mean, not this place here, not community. But this world in which we live is a dark place. Now, you know in the Bible that light and darkness are kind of used. Light is used as, as a, a figure for God's righteousness, his holiness. Darkness speaks of evil. In fact, right on the eve of the crucifixion, when the, when the mob came, Jesus said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But this is a different word than the regular word for darkness. It means a similar thing, but presents us with a, just a slightly different picture. Because it's the idea of what's obscure, what's become murky, what's become unclear. Let me illustrate it this way. You know, there have been places around here that if you bought a car, or you moved here from the north and you didn't have it, you didn't have any kind of tinted glass, you say, man, alive, this it's like 900 degrees out here and the sun is so bright. So you go to one of these places that installs this thing on your back windshield. That, I guess they call that tinting. Whatever they call it, most of them don't do a very good job, right? Because I pull up behind car after car after car and it's just got bubbles all through it. So it's become murky. You can't see through it very well. You may see a little bit, but you can't really see through it because it's become murky. Well, this is a, that's a very apt picture. That's a very apt description of where we are in this world because we have so much religious confusion. And I think that this, again, is Peter reflecting on the subject he's getting ready to get into about these false teachers. The world has become such a murky place because you have so many voices speaking and so, many, so much religious confusion. So what do we have to rescue us from this? What do we have to keep us on course? I mean, could we be affected by these people? Could we, could we you know, fall prey to some of this confusion? And Peter says, yes. 
you do. He says, we have something even better than a vision. Now, when I look at the translation of verse number uh, 19, I'll have to just tell you this real quick, and I don't have time to, to say as much as I'd like to about this. There's a couple of ways of looking at this, two main ways of looking at this. It's possible, and a lot of interpreters take this view. This, I get this a little bit from what the, how the ESV renders it, that what they think Peter is trying to say is that the experience made the Old Testament prophecies with reference to the coming of Christ that much more sure. I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with that as a, really as a biblical thought. I mean, yes, they certainly reinforced and demonstrated how true those things were. But there's an equally valid way of taking this construction in the original. And it's actually, I, I'm not trying to put one, one uh, translation, pit one translation against another. But to give you an example, you'll find this in the marginal reading in the New American Standard, or you'll actually find it in the text of the King James. That's the way the King James takes it. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now the thought comes out is that what Peter is saying is, yes, there are experiences. Yes, they have some value. But we have something better. And that's what I like to tell my charismatic friends. You can tell me about experiences all day long, and I'm not denying that there's a certain value to some experiences. I'm not endorsing the movement, I'm just saying. But I have something better. This is a good message for the church at Corinth, wouldn't it have been? And we have this. We have the Word of God, which is, Jesus tells us he's the light of the world. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. But until he returns, we have the light of God's word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he also uses the figure until the day dawn, which is a biblical expression for the return of the Lord, until the day dawn and the morning star arise in our hearts. Well, you can think about Venus, or you can think about Jesus identified himself at the end of the book of the Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. To me, that's better than an experience. I have something better. It's here with me every day. It doesn't change. There are good spiritual leaders who have taught us this word of God. We have it for ourselves. And so God's word is sufficient for faith. Why? And this is the last two verses, and again, I'll have to be real, 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 just real to the point about this. For the, knowing this first of all, in other words, this idea of knowing this first of all is this is of paramount importance. This is of primary importance is what, what is that? That no prophecy of the scripture came from someone's own interpretation. The word interpretation means unraveling. Its origin is not from human beings is what this verse, I think, is pointing to. If Peter is saying something different, if, if Peter is simply saying that we're not in need of human interpreters, then he doesn't need verse 20. I think what he's, he, everything here points. No prophecy of the scripture arises. It never came as a factor of human imagination, human ingenuity, human unraveling. How did it come? This is why the Bible's better. Verse 21, no prophecy, he, here's where he finishes his thought, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
That's a shot across the bow of these false teachers. Nothing about Christianity came from the will of man. But men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think you know this. You've heard this before. We'll have to close with this. But when he says carried along, moved along, this is the same word that Luke uses when he's describing Paul's shipwreck. And if you look at that verse, after hoisting it up, that is the sail, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground in the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And again, there's not time to talk about it, but it's almost like you have a mini presentation of the inspiration of the Bible. How did that work? It didn't come from human beings. It came as God used human beings and by his spirit moved them. Just as you can picture a, a, a sailing vessel being moved through the sea by the power of the wind, he moved them such, such that through those human writers, through those human personalities, we receive the word of God. And you know what? why this is better? It's because of this. God uses leaders and God uses experiences, but they are impermanent. The Bible is the one thing that remains. Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. Psalm 118, 89. And Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass, but my words shall not pass away. You have it, ladies and gentlemen. I do too, right here. Let's get after it this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, for your blessing, and thank you for what Peter ministers to his audience about being grounded in the faith and how the, the Word of God is the greatest tool for that. Help us to take advantage of what's been given so freely to us in the plen plenitude and the availability of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.